Hi, this is Nathan. Before we get to the episode, I want to invite you to join me on an incredible adventure this November of 2024. I am taking a small group of believers to Turkey, what the New Testament called Asia Minor, for a 12-day Bible study tour of the early church. We'll be studying the book of Acts and many of the epistles on location as we visit ancient cities like Ephesus, Laodicea, Heropolis, Antioch, Pergamum, and many more. If you are interested in joining me this November for a once-in-a-lifetime adventure as we study where much of the New Testament and early church took place, you can learn more by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. And if you're interested, don't delay. Spots are limited and on a first-come, first-served basis, and a $100 discount is available if you register before May 27th. I do hope you can join me. And again, more information is available at deeperchristian.com forward slash turkey. Now, here's the episode. Welcome to episode 93 of the Deeper Christian Podcast. This is the podcast to help you study God's word, know Jesus intimately, and discover how you can build your life around Jesus Christ. I'm Nathan Johnson, and in today's episode, I want to talk about the purpose of the name of Jesus. Let's dive in. In the last episode, episode number 92, we listened to a sermon by a friend and mentor of mine named Stephen Manley on the name of Jesus, taken from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Well, this is the second sermon in that little mini-series from verse 21 where it talks about not just the name of Jesus, but what is the purpose of the name of Jesus. Again, it's taken from Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, which says this, And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And as I said last week, I really hope that this sermon would be an encouragement and a reminder that Jesus is to be our focus, our delight, and our consumption every single day of the year, especially in this season where we're celebrating his birth. Well, without further ado, this is Stephen Manley's sermon called The Purpose of His Name. And we're looking again at uh, chapter 1, verse 21 specifically. And I appreciate your uh, patience in all of this as we're... uh trying to deal with this uh, first narrative that is given to us by Matthew. He starts out, of course, with the genealogy in verse 1 down through verse 17, giving the legal uh, genealogy, the legal father of of Jesus, and uh, ends up by saying in verse 16 that, uh, of course, uh, Joseph had absolutely nothing to do with it. And then he gives the natural father genealogy, a second one, a second genealogy in verse 18, which is the beginning of the narrative. We want to begin reading at verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, the old angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Verse 21 again. And she will bring forth a son, 
you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. You know, of course, that the crucifixion, resurrection uh, event as given at the close of Matthew, Matthew chapter 27 and 28, is absolutely uh, foundational and essential to the whole Christian faith. That the whole Christianity, redemption from sin, all rests in the crucifixion, resurrection event. And the thing that's so uh, impressive to me as you get into those events and begin to study them is the total, absolute focus on the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, I've been so uh, moved by that that I'm finding myself almost in every sermon saying something like this because it, it's so powerful that as you begin to look at these events, the whole focus is not on theology, it's not on philosophy, it's, it's not on concept, it's not on ideas, it's, it's not about a, a new adventure, it's all about the dynamic of the person, the person, the person, the person of Jesus Christ. He is central and everything is focused on Him. You, you see that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hey, everybody who's worshiping is worshiping the resurrected person, the person of Jesus Christ. Everyone who's talking about the resurrection is talking about the person, the resurrected person of Jesus Christ. See, everybody who now has hope has hope in the person, the person of Jesus Christ. See, they're not talking about a philosophy of everlasting living. They're not talking about a new doctrine of eternal life. They're talking about the resurrected person. Hey, the resurrected person. In the, in the book of Acts, chapter 1, verse 3 talks about infallible proofs and these infallible proofs of the resurrection came out of uh, Jesus being with them for 40 days before his ascension can you imagine the experience they had 40 days with the resurrected Christ man 40 solid days they walked with him and they had these infallible proofs and 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 what were the infallible proofs oh it's obvious what he's talking about Hey, we touched Him. We handled Him. We felt Him. We saw Him. We smelled Him. We slept with Him. We ate with Him. Hey, He got up in the morning and His hair was all messed up. We were with Him for 40 solid days. Flesh and bones and blood. Jesus, He cooked fish for us on the fire. Hey, we were with Him. And at the end of the 40 days, we were so convinced of His person. You couldn't talk us out of it. His person. His person. See, the whole emphasis is on the person of Jesus Christ. He is the validity of the whole thing. The living, functioning person called Jesus. It's a total, absolute focus on this person. Now, that's the end of Matthew. And you're not going, you're, you won't be surprised when I tell you, at the beginning of Matthew, you have the same identical thing. Yes, the crucifixion, resurrection event is a total focus on the person of Jesus. But the Christmas story, folks, is a total focus on the person of Jesus Christ. See, everything that's going on in the Christmas drama is all focused on this Jesus. Obviously, Mary is all focused on the babe that's in her womb and the experience she is having and the fact that Jesus is going to be born through her. Hey, she's not talking about the doctrine of incarnation. She's not interested in, in proposing the virgin birth theory. See, she's not talking about any of that stuff. She's talking about Jesus, Jesus. He's in my womb. I'm carrying him for nine months. And her total focus was on the person of Jesus Christ. The angel who's come to give the announcement to Joseph is focused absolutely, totally on the person of Jesus Christ. The whole reason Joseph ought to act the way he's going to act, the whole reason he ought to do what the angel says he, she, he should do, is all because of this person, this person called Jesus Christ. Hey, he is, he is going to be Emmanuel, God with us. See, the total focus is on the person of Jesus Christ. 
Joseph in his dilemma is all wrapped up in the problems, but suddenly his focus is shifted from the problems to, oh, the Jesus is coming. The Jesus is going to be born. And I'm in the middle of this. And it was a total focus on the person of Jesus. The wise men, the wise men, they've come following a star, seeking what? Not a new religion. Seeking what? Not a new doctrine. Seeking what? The person, the person of Jesus Christ. See, they're all wrapped up in the new king. Where's the person? We've come looking for him. The angel of the angelic host giving the announcements to the shepherd was all about an announcement of the person. The shepherds, when they came to the manger, were seeking the person. When they left the manger, what did they talk about? The person. See, the whole big deal of the Christmas event is focused on the person. Could we just come back to Jesus? Would that be okay? Could, could we just all just get together and just, just focus on Jesus? Could, could we just give our whole attention to Him? Would everything be all right if we, if we quit all the little stuff and all the picky stuff and all the little division and all the doctrinal stuff and just got all wrapped up in Jesus and loving Him with our whole being? What else could there be? Would that bring the solution to our lives? Would that bring, would that bring the answer to our society? Could it all be it's wrapped up in this, in this person, this person? called Jesus. Oh, you see that plainly in the opening narrative. Yeah, it's the, goes, it begins in verse 18 and goes down through the end of the chapter to verse 25. See, the whole focus, again, in the narrative is on the person of Jesus Christ. You know, of course, that Mary has been gone for three months. She's been down to Elizabeth uh, talking uh, things over down there and getting support from Elizabeth. Now she's back and she's giving physical evidence to the fact on the announcement that the angel made about her being with child. And the rumors begin to spread all over the community. And of course, Joseph finds out about it. Evidently, Mary didn't come and talk this over with him. It's an interesting factor, isn't it? Evidently, she didn't come to try and defend herself, didn't come and try to make defense for herself and say, well, you must understand now, I've got to straighten you out on this. No, the same Holy Spirit and, and God that He revealed this to her is going to have to take care of Him. And she's trusting God totally in this situation. She's not manipulating it. That's refreshing, isn't it? What an example. And so Joseph probably sends out some, uh, some people to investigate to be sure that the rumor is true. And when he finds out it's true, he's in this awful dilemma. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? He's troubled in his sleep. An angel of the Lord appears, according to verse 20. And you'll, you'll remember the angel of the Lord puts this on a real important level. Because the angel of the Lord was not just angel, you know. It, it was, it, from according to an Old Testament, it was the merging of this, of this presence of God and this angel until the angel of the Lord is, is literally God speaking. Oh, not that the angel is God, but there is a merging. It's kind of a foretaste of what we experience in the fullness of the Spirit. And the angel represented here, as, as this angel speaks, it's, it's God speaking. So you see, God is so concerned about this whole drama and its unfolding that he has come to supervise himself. He isn't going to have anything go wrong with this situation. No, sir. He's going to guide this thing just exactly the way he wants it to go. And God is on the scene. And the angel of the Lord gives this message. What is his message? Oh, he speaks especially to Joseph 
obviously. And, and, and in the beginning of the message in verse 20, gives him specific information and instruction of exactly what he's supposed to do. Hey, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And then the message begins to branch out. And before you get done, hey, you see that the message is really for you as he goes into verse 21 and is an overwhelming statement that we're trying to look at. And she will bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. It's an overwhelming statement. It's a bold statement. It's the kind of statement you would find on a plaque on the wall of a church. It's the kind of statement that's a mission statement of all that Jesus is all about. The angel somehow has reached out and grabbed a hold of everything that Jesus is going to accomplish and has put it in one simple statement. See, the angel has given the message that literally is going to tell everything that he's going to pull off and, and the very purpose of his coming all wrapped up in one single dynamic statement. And again, it's, it's, it's like a title page to the whole book. It's just, if you read this and don't read any of the rest of the book, you got it all. For he will save his people from their sins. concept is overwhelming. I want to try to uh, wrestle with it somewhat tonight. Let's begin with this. Savior, did you note? For He will save His people from their sins. It's a distinct, clear-cut declaration of the Savior. For He will save His people from their sins. You notice that the name Jesus, we talked about it last night, but it's, it's central right in the whole verse. The whole verse revolves around it. It's as if it's the name Jesus is all there is to the verse and that everything else in the verse somehow gives content to that name. You, you'll notice he uses the word for after the name Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus for... That means you assign a cause is what the Greek word actually means. And some translations translate because. You shall call his name Jesus because. Here's why. This is the reason. And this idea of saving his people from their sins is intimately connected with this name. You'll remember the name Jesus is a sentence name, literally meaning Yahweh saves, which fits in the whole the whole discussion he's giving to us. And so the very idea of he will save his people from their sin is the content of the name Jesus himself. And do you notice again, it's a total focus on the person of Jesus Christ. Who's going to save his people from their sins? It's Jesus. Oh, I love to talk about this. This total absolute focus on Jesus because you see there is no salvation outside of the person there is no additional resource for this salvation but Him. Do you understand that it's not Jesus, the leader of a group of angels who are going to come and pull this off and He is the leader, but there's some other... No, no. He alone is going to pull this business of redemption off. He alone is going to be the source and the resource of the changing of the life and the saving from the sin. He alone, the person I'm talking about, the person of Jesus Christ. You understand? He's not the inventor of the resource of salvation and then goes off and we, of course, dip into the resource. Do you, re do you understand? He's the inventor of the resource and He is the resource at the same time. 
See, he's the baker of the bread and the bread at the same moment. See, he's the high priest that offers the sacrifice and he's the sacrifice at the same time. See, the salvation is contained exclusively, 100%, you got to get this, 100%, absolutely, totally, in the person of Jesus Christ. And there is no salvation outside of him. It's not that he's starting this redemptive process and others will take over and carry on the process in days to come. No, he's the starter, the beginning and the end of the entirety of salvation. And outside of the person of Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no salvation whatsoever. He is the sum total. There is not Jesus plus anything. It's Jesus exclusively, 100% Jesus the person. He is the absolute totality of salvation. It's a total, absolute focus on Jesus. Now, that's so distinct in the verse. I want you to look at it again, verse 21. For he will save. Did you note the verb, will save? But you see in the Greek language, that verb will save is one word, and it includes the pronoun in it. So it's one, he will save is really a translation of one single Greek word. But see, the writer, the writer's not satisfied with that. The angel speaking isn't satisfied with that. For he gives the pronoun within the verb, so he's given it once. But you see, he states the pronoun all over again in a, sec, in a second word, in a spatial word, in, in a word all of its own. So a literal translation would go like this. For he, he will save his people from their sin. Or we would translate it like this. For he himself will save his people from their sin. The American Standard Version translates it like this, for it is he that will save his people from their sin. See, they are absolutely determined there will not be any misunderstanding about the salvation being exclusively, 100%, absolutely, totally residing within the person of Jesus Christ. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. He is the sum total of it all, Jesus. Hey, come on, let's come back to Jesus where it all is. Jesus is it. Oh, you remember in the book of Acts, we've already talked about it a little bit, but hey, there was this miracle created and, and, the, and the leaders of Israel got all bent out of shape and called the disciples in. And as they called them in, they said, we want to know by what name or power you do this. And Peter, of course, launched into a discourse and was filled with the Holy Spirit as he did it. And he ended up his discourse saying things like this, nor is there salvation in any other. I'm telling you, there is no salvation in any other, not in any other ceremony, not in any other tradition, not in any other idea, not in any other program, not in any other self-discipline, not in any other meditation, not in any other God, not in any other, 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 other. There is no salvation in any other, for there is no name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Is he not telling us all over again that salvation is exclusively 100% a Jesus deal? Paul was addressing the Israelites and he was building this case for Christianity. And of course, he was so slick. He, he, he reached back into the Old Testament setting and he began to build his case for Christianity on their history and he talked about how God gave them their land. And, and then he moved on to talk about how God gave them judges for 450 years. And, 
And he went on to talk about how God permitted them to have a king by the name of Saul. And, and then when that got all messed up, God came along and replaced Saul with David. And when he came to David, it was like a launching pad. And he went into this, this discourse about the person of Jesus. And he started the discourse like this. He said, from this man's seed meaning David, from David's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. There is none outside of Him. The Savior and the only Savior, He says, is Jesus. You've looked to your traditions. You've looked to your ceremonies. Come back to Jesus, guys. Open up your eyes. Get back to Jesus. You've worked yourself to death. You've kept all the laws. You've gone through all the ceremonies. You've given all the tithe. You've operated all the program. Come on. Fall in love with Jesus, will you? Come back to Jesus. This is where it's at. Give yourself to Jesus. Focus anew and afresh on Jesus. I have this overwhelming fear that we don't quite grasp that. Oh, we can quote the words, but we don't quite. That salvation is in the person of Jesus Christ. It's in the person. See, that there is no salvation outside of the person. That the minute you're outside of the person, you're lost. That salvation is not in having contact with Him some 25 years ago in an experience. No, it's in Him right now, being in Him right this very moment. See, Jesus never gives us anything apart from Himself. See, it isn't something you get from Him at an altar 25 years ago and then live it for the rest of your life. No, it's Him. I need Thee every moment. Didn't we sing that? Every hour. I, I need Thee every hour. Because it's only in Him that He's the sum total of all things and He never gives you anything. He doesn't give you forgiveness and then you go off and use it. He doesn't give you love and then you go off. No, He doesn't give you happiness and then you go off and use it. He doesn't give you strength and now. No, it's all in Him. And when you are in Him, you have it all. For He is the sum total of all things and salvation is only, only, only when you are in Him and apart from the person, the person of Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. But I'm a good person. It doesn't even count. But I go to... It doesn't count. Well, I haven't done any real bad sins. It doesn't count. It's Him. We're a part of the Wesleyan Arminian holiness movement. Aren't you impressed? That's us. That's our heritage. Well, is that a doctrine that you believe? Well, yeah, but it's more than a doctrine because it's a viewpoint. It's a way of approaching things. It comes out of the Scriptures, you know, and it comes from the very presence of God as you begin to think like He thinks and, and, and you get into His heart and, and there's this viewpoint, there's this, there's this perspective that you have. You realize, of course, there are other perspectives around. Like there is Calvinism, which is another perspective. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, while there's differences between us in our viewpoint, you understand, Wesleyan, Arminian, Holiness viewpoint, and the Calvinist, Calvinistic viewpoint, while there's differences in our viewpoint, and lots of argument goes back and forth, and everybody can get really red-faced about the whole thing, there are some absolute fundamentals that are so deep that they run through both of us. Let me read you. I normally don't give quotes, but I'm going to give you a couple quotes tonight. Let me give you a quote from John Calvin. Wrote this in his Institutes. The moment 
the moment, the moment we turn aside from Christ in the minutest degree, salvation which resides entirely in Him gradually disappears. The moment, did you get that? The moment we turn aside from Christ in the minutest degree, salvation which resides entirely in Him, it gradually disappears. So that all who do not rest in Christ voluntarily deprive themselves of all grace. Oh, I've got to read that to you again. You. The, the moment, the moment we turn aside from Christ in the minutest degree, salvation which resides entirely in Christ gradually disappears. So that all who do not rest in Him voluntarily deprive themselves of all grace. The observation of Bernard, he goes on and writes, the observation of Bernard well deserves to be remembered. Bernard wrote, quote, The name of Jesus is not only light, but food also. Yea, oil, without which all the food for the soul is dry. It's salt without which whatever is set before us is tasteless. It is honey in the mouth, melody in the ear, joy in the heart, and at the same time, medicine for the soul. Every discourse where this name is not heard is absurd. I'd say you were stuck on Jesus, wouldn't you? Salvation is totally, did you get it? Totally, absolutely in Him. That's the announcement. Well, let's go on with the concept. Oh, verse 21. For He will, it's the Savior, He will save His people from their sins. Salvation. Yes, will save His people from their sins. See, there's the Savior who brings the salvation. And the salvation is all about this Sin's business. Isn't it interesting that Jesus isn't even born and they're, they're, right, they're talking about sin already? He's not done one single miracle and they're on the sin business already. He has not launched His earthly ministry and they're yelling at us about sins already. Which would tell you that this, this whole sin business, this, this focus on sin is, is, while it's a bit negative, it, it really, really, really does matter. And of course, everybody would agree here tonight that, hey, when you're saved, you are saved from sin. We can quote that. We know that Jesus died to save us from sin. How could you get away from that? But see, the problem is in the, the, in the concept of sin. I've been struggling with this kind of stuff because, you see, I, I, I come out of school. I, well, I know it's been a long time, but I, I, you know, I come out of reading the books and I come out of this, this cultural setting of ours and I come out of the theological climate of our day and, and I have these, cer these certain concepts that I got a hold of. But see, what I've been wanting to do is I've been wanting to go back, see? I've been wanting to go back and sit in Joseph's chair and, and put on his sandals and have an angel appear to me and have that angel speak. And when I hear the words, for he will save his people from their sins... What did Joseph get out of that? What did he hear? What did it mean in his context? What was his concept of sin? What did he think he was going to be saved from? 
What was the deal there? Not here, there. When Matthew was writing this, and he was writing to a group of Jews some, some years after the death of Jesus, what was it that he was intending to say by this? What was his concept of sins? And when he said it, he knew that the Jews would understand it. And what did they understand by the whole thing? What was the concept? I want to try to give you that concept tonight. That might mean that you're going to have to set aside your preconceived concept of sin and you're going to have to open up to say, hey, here's the concept that was being given in this particular verse at this particular time in the setting and in the context of what was going on. You realize it was a messianic context. Oh, that takes you clear back to the Garden of Eden. That takes you back to... Genesis 3.15, that takes you back to sin has just been created, sin has just been done, and, and the first sin has been committed, and, and God is on the scene, and, and judgment is coming, and, and He's describing what's going to actually take place to uh, Adam and Eve, and, and He's talking particularly to the devil himself. And, and in verse uh, chapter uh, 3, verse 15, He's saying stuff like, enmity, hey, there's going to be enmity between your seed and her seed. And you will bruise his heel, but he will bruise your head. And this enmity thing, you know what enmity is all about? It's all about attitude, man. It's all about opposition. It's all about war. It's all about battle. It's all about rebellion. It's all about, I'm against you. It's all about, hey, I don't want, want anything to do. It's all about opposition. See, that, that was the enmity. That's what's going to come. Enmity. You follow that down through the Old Testament and that just, the Old Testament just reeks of that idea. Hey, Jesus, was going to be born a Jew. That's a frightening idea, isn't it? Wasn't born an American. Was born a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Forevermore. Wasn't a white man. He was a Jew. And salvation was going to come through the Jews. And Jews were reading the book of Matthew. It was written for the purpose of communicating to them. So again, the whole context is a Jewish messianic context. So I want to propose to you that what he's really saying here when he says sin, it's not about deed done, not about the list of rules we have in the church, that what he's talking about in the context of the messianic idea is that anything that opposes, anything that obstructs, Anything that wars against the acceptance of the messianic deliverer is going to be literally saved, cleansed, removed, dealt with. It's going to be eliminated. That what Jesus is coming to do is to settle all opposition, everything that resists his messianic deliverance. Well, what's the messianic deliverance all about? Oh, you already know, because we've talked about it all the way through this book so far. And the genealogy, it's all about Jesus is king, king of the kingdom. And everything that opposes that is going to be eliminated. Jesus came to settle everything, to put down, to seize, to bring to an end, to save us from everything that opposes his kingship in our lives. See, every force, every deed, every attitude, every action, every plan, every thought process, every structure, every program which opposes Him 
is eliminated in him. And all of that attitude, force, program, whatever opposes him is labeled sin. Now, Matthew reveals this as he stomps through his book because every single miracle Jesus did was to reverse the results of sin. He was taking the unnatural and bringing it back to the natural. See, his battle with the leaders was all over what? They had their programs. Have you ever gone into this? They had their programs and their ceremony and their structure and their way of doing things. And when Jesus came along, obviously, if he's the Messiah, do you know what that's going to do to our programs? For instance, they offered sacrifice lambs. They offered 250,000 of them in a one-week period down at the temple. Do you know how much money they made on that? Woo! Do you understand what, how, that, how that affected the budget of the temple? And along came Jesus and said, Hey, I'm the Messiah, the Lamb, and you won't need to do that anymore. You think they're going to buy into that? Not a chance, brother. So their very program and their very sacrifice and their very religion oppose, oppose the kingship of Jesus, the messianic deliverance. So their program and their ceremony was sin. Isn't that an awful, awesome concept? That anything that opposes his lordship, anything that demands control in my life except him, anything that raises its head and wants its position instead of him, anything that will not accept his total absolute control, anything that will not come under submission to him as he resides in my life is called sin. See, it has nothing to do with deed. It has everything to do with how that deed fits into and relates to the person of Jesus in his lordship. Now, the actual word here for sin is the word that you're familiar with. In fact, it's the most often Greek word that's in the New Testament for sin that we translate sin. It means missing the mark. It means that a soldier is throwing a spear and he misses the target. It means that the traveler is on his way and he misses the road and he's lost. That, that sin is not contained then within the deed itself. It, it's missing. It, it, it's an attitude of missing. It, it, it's being out of. It's, it's being aside from. It's not being under his lordship, coming under his kingship. Everything that opposes his kingship then is labeled sin. And again, it's not that this deed contained within the deed is sin, that no deed is sin only as that deed is related to Jesus. Boy, I'd like to put that as the standard of the church. Well, what can't you do down at your church? Anything that opposes his kingship, you can't do. Well, what could that be? Anything. Because it isn't the deed itself, it's the attitude. Sleeping in church could be as bad as adultery. Five people woke up. See, that, that could be... 
See, because it's not the deed itself. Do you understand? It's not the deed itself. And I'm struggling to communicate this to you because this is so vital and so important that Jesus came for one single reason, folks. He came to eliminate all the opposition to His kingship in my life. And anything that opposes His kingship is sin. Well, you say that completes the verse then. For he will save his people from their sins. He is the Savior. There is no salvation outside the person. And therefore, hey, he saves us from sin, which is anything that opposes his lordship or his kingship in my life. So he saves us from that. So that solves the, that, that, that's the whole end of the verse. Ah, but you see, there's another part to the concept. And it's not in what he says, it's in what he doesn't say that fulfills the concept. We're calling it the severity. So there's the Savior, there's the salvation, there's the severity of the concept. The severity now is not in what he says in the actual words of the verse, but it's in what he doesn't say. Do you notice that there is no, there is no additional statement made? D did you notice that there is no disclaimer? Did you notice there's no qualifying statement? Did you notice he didn't say, Jesus will save it, for he will save his people from their sins, except... See, he doesn't say, Jesus will save his people from their sins unless they're teenagers. Uh, of course, you can't do it for teenagers. We all know that. So, Jesus will save his people from their sins, and of course, unless they have arthritis, and we know what that does to you. See, Jesus will save his people from their sins unless they didn't have a, if, unless they didn't have a church background. Jesus will save his people from their sins unless there was abuse in their life, previous life. And Jesus will save his people from their sins unless there is no unless. See, there's no disclaimer. See, it's so strong. And if you knew nothing about life at all, if you knew, had no experience to relate to, but all you had was this single statement right here, you would walk away with the conclusion that, hey, what's going to happen in my life when I get into Jesus? Is, I'm going to quit sinning, brother. Sin is going to be gone. That He is going to save me from my sin. That's what you would conclude from this statement. Nod your heads. Yeah, that's what you could, could conclude. Did you notice the word from? It literally means, the Greek word literally means off or away. It means from. It denotes the idea of separation, departure, ceasing, reversal, completion, all of those kinds of words. That He didn't come to save us in sin. He came to save us from Oh, Adam Clark, you're all familiar with his commentary. I want to give you another quote. Here's what he says about this verse. This is really neat. He says, This, this verse, This shall be Christ's great business in the world. The great errand that he has come, namely, to make an atonement for and to destroy sin. Deliverance from all the power, guilt, and pollution of sin is the privilege of every believer in Christ Jesus. Less than this is not spoken of in the Gospels. Less than this is not spoken of in the Gospels. 
and less than this would be unbecoming to the gospel. The perfection of the gospel system is not in that it makes allowances for sin, but that it makes an atonement for it. Not that it tolerates sin, but that it destroys sin. Isn't that strong? Oh, I want to take you to another passage. I want you to look this up so you can read it yourself, if you will. I want you to go to 1 John. Now, John is so kind, you know, he's a, he's a loving grandfather and he doesn't want to put anybody down and he, isn't, he's, he goes overboard not to create guilt. He doesn't want anybody to, be, to feel guilt. He wants to encourage everybody. And he, and he moves into his, his uh, lesson, his message in 1 John chapter 2, for instance. He moves in by saying, my little children... My little children, hey, you're my children. I, hey, he love your children, you know. My little children, you're my children, man. I bring you to my heart. You're my children. I care about you. And I'm writing to you to encourage you. I'm not writing to put you down. I'm not writing for, with, a, with a finger in, you, in your face, scolding you. I'm writing to encourage you, to lift you up, to build you up. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. Come on, be encouraged. This is where you ought to be. This is where you can be. Come on, lift your head. Come on, come on. I'm not, I'm not putting you down. I'm saying, hey, look up. Here's where you can be. This is the purpose. This is the big deal. This is why I'm writing this whole thing to you. To encourage you and elevate you. That you may not sin. Now, if you do sin, don't, don't be wiped out. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. There's forgiveness. We understand that. Praise God. There's forgiveness. We know that. But I'm trying to encourage you into all that God wants you to have. And as he moves then through into chapter 3, he begins to write stuff like this. Look at chapter 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. And you know that Jesus was manifested. Manifested. Showed up. Manifested to take away our sins. And in Him there is no sin. Now whoever abides in Christ does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Oh, little children, please, please, let me encourage you. Let no one deceive you. He who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. Whoever has been born of God does not Sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he's been born of God. Now, the whole tone of this is not, oh, you dirty, rotten sinners, I'm going to... No, it's not that. See, it's not a finger in the face. It's, hey, I'm encouraging you. I'm not trying to heap guilt upon you. I'm not trying to put you down. I'm trying to say, woo, look up. There's victory. Look up. There's deliverance. Look up. Everything that opposes the Lordship of Jesus can be eliminated in my life. In Jesus, He will smash everything that fights His authority. Every attitude, every action, every force in my life that battles and wars against His Lordship. He's going to conquer it. Jesus, here I am. Do it in my life. And He's going to lift me into total, absolute victory. That's where I'm to abide. Come on, be encouraged. Come on. 
you have no idea how much I love the book of Hebrews and I keep going back to it all the time. Hebrews chapter 9, of course, is the blood chapter. Anytime you want to study the blood of Jesus, you study Hebrews chapter 9. I mean, it just he talks about the blood of the bulls and the goats and that wasn't adequate, but the blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. And he gives a whole chapter on the thing. And then out of that chapter of the blood, the blood chapter, he spills into chapter 10, which is an obedience chapter. Let me give you a summary of the chapter. See, the summary of the chapter is that he starts out talking about, oh, yeah, there's this Old Testament sacrifice. You know what the Old Testament sacrifice was like. Yeah, they, they sinned all year, of course, and then under the guilt of that sin, they came down and they offered a, the blood of the bull or a blood, a blood of a goat or a blood of a lamb, and they offered this, this sacrifice. And what was that sacrifice intended to do? That sacrifice was intended to eliminate and, and, and forgive and blot out all the sins of the year and then they were expected to go out fresh from that point and they were expected to obey the law of God and live right above sin. That's what they were expected to do. But you see, it didn't quite work out that way because, hey, they slipped back into sin and had to come back the next year, you know, and offer another sacrifice, which, of course, wiped out the sins of that year. And then they faced a brand new year and were expected to go out and live victorious above sin, keeping the law of God. But you know what happened. They didn't quite pull that off. And, of course, they had to come back the next year. And, and it's year after year after year, which tells you that the intent of the Old, Old Testament sacrifice, while it was that you should live in victory and not sin, it wasn't strong enough to pull it off. He says, let me tell you about another sacrifice. That's the Old Testament sacrifice. Let me tell you about another sacrifice. The New Testament sacrifice, the blood of Jesus. Did you know he only died once? Why? Because <laughs> you didn't have to offer this sacrifice every year. Why? Because he got the job done. See, the Old Testament sacrifice intended to get the job done. It was supposed to get the job done. That is, you were supposed to live over sin, but you know how. It, but this new sacrifice, whoa, this blood of Jesus sacrifice, whoa, this Jesus person, he, he brought total, absolute victory because you see what he dealt with was inside. He took, and then he quotes Jeremiah 31, 31. He, 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 he quotes this, this covenant, this brand new covenant, which God is going to write in the inner parts of your heart, his laws. And nobody will have to teach anybody to know God because you'll just know him, man. <laughs> and you won't have to say, what's he want me to do? What's he don't want me to do? Whoa, it's just inside. You just know. See, you just know right and you just know wrong because he's inside of you, sensitizing you. And you live in response to his lordship in your life. And it just kind of spills out into victory. See, and so, so, so here's this New Testament sacrifice. And what does the New Testament sacrifice expect out of you? Hey, total victory over sin, that you obey him. You live under his his lordship everything that opposes his lordship is down and you're walking in his grace so the old testament sacrifice expects you to do that but it didn't get it done but the new testament sacrifice hey it did get it done and expects you to live in victory now he says you want to come along and say you know what i'd really prefer i really prefer a christianity that lets me go on sinning that's what i really prefer he says, fine. If that's what you want, that's fine. But if you're going to have that, you better come up with a sacrifice that pulls that off. 
Where's your sacrifice? Where is the sacrifice that allows you to go on sinning? Where is the sacrifice that doesn't demand and expect victory out of you? Now, the Old Testament sacrifice demanded victory. Couldn't pull it off. But the New Testament sacrifice demanded victory and pulled it off. Now, if you want a Christianity that lets you just be, just, just slop around, just go your own, just do your own. If you want that kind of Christianity, come on. Where's the sacrifice that gets it done? He says, I don't know of any sacrifice like that. The only sacrifice I know of is the sacrifice of an Old Testament and the sacrifice of a New Testament. And in the blood of Jesus, there is absolute victory over sin. It's a holiness message. Now, remember that what we're talking about is not, oh, you always do the right thing. No, no, no. Man, I don't always do the right thing. What are you talking about? Well, if you don't sin, then you do the right thing. No, no, no. I drip mustard on my shirt. I do all kinds of things that aren't right. See, we're not talking about perfection. We're, not, we're talking about everything that opposes His Lordship. Everything that is in opposition to Him. Everything that raises its fists and says, No! All resistance in my life against what He wants. He came, ladies and gentlemen, as a babe, and the whole purpose of His coming was to save me from that opposition. And any claim to be a Christian without total, absolute victory over sin is a fake and a fraud, and anything less than holiness is an embarrassment to Christ and makes this whole business of the gospel a joke. Now, this is not a finger wagged in the face. This is not an attempt to create guilt. This is an attempt of encouragement saying, Woo! Do you know what we got on our hands? We've got on us, we've got a Savior. I'm talking about a Savior. It's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus your good work. It's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus coming to church. It's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus working like a dog. It's Jesus. It's not Jesus plus cold showers. It's Jesus, man. Jesus and Jesus alone. And He has come for one reason to bring salvation from my sin, which is opposition to His Lordship. And He squelches, He kills, He destroys everything in my life that wars against Him. I'm responding to Him with my whole being. You got that? Are you in? And if not, why not? Jesus, We're coming to you and you alone. There's no one else to come to. There is no other place to seek an answer. The struggles, the chaos, the difficulties, the war, the self-centeredness, the carnality, the battles, the self-sufficiency, the distraction... The materialism, the being sucked into my world, the being dominated by all my own habits, 
everything that opposes your lordship, kingship in my life. There's no other place to come to where I can find relief, where I can find those things destroyed except in you. I, I want to I leap into you like, 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 like I'm leaping into the into the lake. I want to I wanna plunge in with my whole being. I want to breathe you in. I want to breathe you out. I want to soak every pore of my being in your very presence. I want my mind to be saturated with you. I want my inner heart to just bathe in your being. I want to beat with your very being. I want you to so soak me. I want so to so soak in you. I want to be so filled with you. I want your presence to be so dominant in me that Jesus, I begin to look like you. My face gets to be shaped like yours. I have your attitude. I spill with your presence. I'm being conformed to your image and your lordship. Your very divine being is living through me. And I, I want that so bad. And you promise to give that whole thing to me when I'm in you. Here I am. got resistance in me and I don't know what to do with it. I bite my lip. I try. Sometimes I do better than other times. But there's this inner war going on. I've got battles going on. Sometimes I have good attitudes. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes circumstances get to me. Sometimes. God, how, how could I get in you, Jesus? How could you get in me? How could we get together? So that everything that opposes your Lordship would be brought to death. And could that happen in me tonight in this service? And I want to tell you, Jesus, there isn't anything in, under the sun that's going to stop me from having that. I don't care about being embarrassed. I don't care about who's right and who's wrong. I, I don't care about who says what. I don't care about what excuse has been given. I don't care about what I've said in the past or haven't said. What I care about is right now being totally, absolutely in you and letting you do whatever needs to be done to bring me into your total presence. Until nothing opposes your Lordship. I want to kneel at your feet. With only one message from my lips. Here I am. At your disposal. For you, Jesus, you will save Stephen Manley from his sins and you alone. Would you accept me tonight in these moments? It's about want to join me in this well, thanks for listening to this episode of the Deeper Christian Podcast. For show notes of this episode, please visit deeperchristian.com forward slash 93 for episode number 93. And until next time, know I am cheering you on as you build your life around Jesus Christ.